So we're going back to the mountain today, and um, I've got a great story, and it's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. We're going to talk a little bit about Elijah. Actually, he has two different mountaintop experiences, and we're going to talk about both in just a minute. So last week, we talked a little bit about the mountain transfiguration, and a little bit about, what's the kind of quick review? You know, that's a very powerful story, and um, because we got we got Jesus, and we got Peter, and John, uh, James, and John up there at the top of the mountain, and then, of course, Elijah and Moses show up, and there's this whole transfiguration of Jesus, and we have we have to ask ourselves, what was that question? What is that story really all about? And really, it has a lot to do is when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, do you want me to just pitch a tent? And I remind you all last week, you know, the whole idea of pitching a tent for one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And, and so that goes back to when the children of Israel let out of bondage. And so, um, you know, they pitched a tent over and over again for 40, day, for 40 years. And so it has to do with Moses leading the children out of bondage and actually finally, finally allowing them to have redemption and to be rescued and finding refuge and hope in God. And so in the midst of all that, we find this story in the Gospel of John, and uh, Jesus says himself, at the festival booth one day, as he's standing there, and it connects with the children of Israel, the, the priests would go down to the pools of Siloam, take the water and take it up and pour it into big silver bowls. And so in the midst of that, Jesus says, I can give you water that you'll never have a thirst again, which connects back to the feast, feast of booths which connects back to Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage, which means that they can be rescued. And Jesus comes and says, I'm gonna come rescue you of your sins. In the same way that Jesus, when they would take, the, the, the priests would take these, these great big cues, candelabras, they fill them with oils and they light the torches. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So we find this, this story that on the Mount of Transfiguration connects back to that particular story, the Old Testament story, of Moses leading the children out of bondage. But also we find, once again, it reminds us tonight, and I, I shared with you all last week, that Jesus wants to make sure that everybody is really clear about who he really is. And so when you find the mountain of transfiguration, we find that not only we find Jesus' humanity clearly, but we also find that the countenance of God is upon him and he's transfigured and it has to do with the bright and glowing and, and it has to do with Jesus' divinity. So we got humanity and divinity all wrapped in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the mountain transfiguration. He wants everybody to make sure that you're crystal clear about who Jesus really is and we get that in the story. It's all wrapped in that. So then we start this other story today, and I love this story. Once again, it's another mountaintop story. And so um, this is, um, we find this particular uh, story um, in 1 Kings, and so this is Elijah, and he's on the, town, on the top of the mountain, uh, Mount Horeb, and um, this is what happens on this particular conversation. So the Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After wind, there was the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled off his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, well, I've been very zealous for you, Lord, O God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, amen. So it's a great question, isn't it? Elijah, what are you doing here? I love that question. 
So here's the interesting thing. I mean, there are some deeper questions when you think about going to the top of the mountain. First of all, when you think about going hiking, you kind of have to have some sense of um, where are you going? And so, you know, I, I brought my visual aid. You know, I can't do a sermon without a visual aid. So when you go hiking, you know, you have to have some basic necessities. And, you know, so the, so the basic necessities when you go hiking, you have to have some things. And so because you never know what you might be able to find once on the way on the mountain. I mean, part of the whole thing about when you go on a journey, it's part of the journey. Part of the adventure is the journey. If you're trying to get up, you got to have to some sense of direction. You have to know where ultimately, one of the key questions is where are we going, right? But I'll, we hit, in the midst of no, asking the question, where are we going? There are some things you need to take along with you. So for example, you know, you got to have a granola bar. I just want you to know that. You have to have some kind of food and you got to have some kind of water pack. So I got my camel pack and you fill that up with water and it's just a wonderful little invention that you have. And of course, you got to have hiking shoes. So I got my hiking shoes. I got that all covered. And of course, if, you know, if it's hot out, you got to have you had the right kind of hat, you know? And so then you have all that and then you have to have, well, in case it rains, you got to have, you got to have rain gear and you got that. And of course, if it gets cold up there, I've got a brand new, very nice uh, Carhartt. Car, and then this, this sermon illustration cost me 22 bucks. I just want you to know that. And so I've got that. And so I, I got this brand new, great little beanie in case when I go hiking and I, and it actually matches my suit today. I've got that all going, right? So there you go, okay? And of course I messed my hair up, but that's okay. And so we got, so here's the interesting thing about this whole thing about this journey. So you can have all this stuff that you take to be able to get to the top of the mountain, but maybe that's not the most important thing. We have to have some sense of these deeper questions. And the question is, where are we going? So about, I don't know, about, um, let's see, I wrote this sermon on Tuesday. And um, about Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday morning, about three o'clock in the morning, I just woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep. Does that ever happen to anybody else besides me? You know, wake up, three o'clock in the morning, can't go back to sleep. And I honestly, I had, and I was thinking about this sermon and what I want to share with you all, and I just felt like I had, I had this image in my head. And so the next day, I couldn't get out of my head, so I actually drew it all out, and this is what... So when I, I was, knew I was preparing this message for this particular text for, the book, for Elijah today and had these two great stories about Elijah going on the top of Mount Carmel and actually going down the Mount Horb. And so I had this image and so this is what I came up with because this is really kind of really to me what it, the whole uh, mountaintop experience is really all about. And it's not just Elijah's experience but it's our experience of life. So let me just teach for a second because this is to me this is why sometimes I teach you all something from the scripture. I hope that you learn something new for, about the Bible each week. But I also try each week to try to make something to make it resonate in your heart and maybe we learn something about ourselves and our relationship with God. So I have this image here today, and here I have drawn this little mountain, so here's my mountain, here's the little top of the mountain. So we have to, and this is me and you down here, and so this starts with the bigger thought here, and the reality is that this whole mountain, this whole experience, this whole journey that we're trying to get to the top is really the mountain's bigger than me and you. And so when I think about that, I, I have a couple of great pictures about looking, going out west, and the idea how great and vast God's creation is. And so there's one of my kids sitting on the ledge there. And so it's just beautiful. Can you show that next picture? And so then you see all the little ants at the bottom there. That's me and some of my kids walking along. And they're just, you know, it's just amazing. This, so it just reminds me that, you know, I'm, I'm just reminded that great little opening line of Rick Warren's sermon, it's not about you. So... I have this deeper appreciation and perspective about life and that, you know, I am enjoying life and I appreciate life, but you know, life is so much bigger than just me and just you. God's got this greater call upon our life. 
And, and so I, I have these four key words when I think about this. And the first word has to do with the word, and I put up here, I put God, and God's calling upon my life because God's calling upon my life is so much bigger than just me. So when God has given us this precious gift of life, it's not just about serve myself, but it's about ultimately serving other people. And then there's a connection between that. It's my relation, my personal relationship with God, my personal relationship with my family, my personal relationship with, with you. So it's not just about me. It's about me and my relationship with God and me and my relationship with other people. And how do I live into that? What has God called me to do and how has God called me to live? So, so the bigger part of this is it's bigger than me. The mountain's bigger than me. The journey's bigger than me and God's called me. And the, here's the two big things about, and here's what I know about the Bible. You go back and look at the scripture. Here's the very important thing. Usually when it comes to God's calling upon our life, there's something easy. God's called us to do something or God's call us into being. In other words, to have a deeper understanding about the reason why I'm even called to existence, the reason why God has even called me and created me in the first place. So the, the two big questions, the big things that we continue to figure out in our life, this journey that we have going up to the top of the mountain, this journey, this part of this adventure from A to Z to the first breath that we take, the last breath we have, is that really we continue to grapple this question about the and yeah, what has God called me to do and what has God called me to be? So in the midst of all this, so God's given us a calling, but then all of a sudden we have this word at the bottom of the mountain, that's what I call the word conviction. And the word conviction has everything to do with, you know, reminding us that realizing that we're all sinners, that we mess up from time to time. That's the reason why we're here today, to be able to celebrate and remember that God has actually, well, Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and the third day he rose from the dead. Hallelujah, can I amen on that? We've come to celebrate the gift of the resurrection, but you cannot get, you can't get to Easter without going through the Good Friday. And I've shared with you that over and over again. So there's this conviction in my heart, and there's a conviction in our hearts that we're sinners and that we need to be redeemed and we need to be saved, we need to be rescued. And so it comes to that part of this conviction that I, I realize I cannot do this on my own and I can't get to heaven on my own. Can I mean on that? That's why we need the blood of Jesus Christ, the redemption of Jesus Christ, the, the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when I get that, that through my thick head because I realize I'm a sinner, then I feel convicted and I say, dear God, I'm... I've completely blown it. I need for you to save me. I need for you to redeem me. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. So this whole relationship that we have with, with our loving Lord, with Jesus Christ, really comes with the beginning of the mountain that has to do with the conviction. And out of the conviction, we find this sense of clarity about this direction that we're headed that God's given us this clear sense of direction that I'm moving up the mountain. And out of the middle of this journey that we're on from A to Z, from the first breath that we take to the last breath that we take, we're, we're on this journey, we're on this adventure from day to day to day, and we find this sense of conviction in our hearts, and we, once again, we find this word clarity. Once again, God brings us a sense of clarity about what we're doing and what we're called to be and what we're called to do. And then in the midst of, once out of clarity, we have certainty that Jesus Christ really is the Lord of a life, and this is what God's called me to do, and this is what God's called me to be. So we have conviction, we have clarity, and then we have certainty that this Jesus Christ really is the Lord of my life, that when I die, I can be rest assured that there's a place for me because Jesus promised me that I have created a mansion and there are many rooms there. 
and one is prepared for you. Glory, hallelujah. Can I have amen on that? I have God to preach you today. I want you to know that. So we have this, this bigger picture, this mountain that it's so much bigger than me and you, that we have a con, this idea that God's called us upon our lives. There's something to do and there's something to be and that God's got us a conviction and there's clarity and there's certainty. And the top of the mountain, oh wait a minute, here's the pinnacle of the mountain. What is called a, what has God called us to do and be? And as Ellen shared in our, in our prayer just a minute ago, God has called us to be and to live in, to loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what we find in Deuteronomy the, in the Old Testament. And then Jesus takes that and even raises the bar. He says, now are you supposed to do that? But he says, I want you to love and I'm gonna give you a brand new command to love just as I have taught you to love. So the idea that as I make this journey and I'm making my way in this journey, this mountain is so much bigger than me that God's called me to do and be and he's giving me a conviction, he's giving me clarity, he's giving me certainty and he's moving us up towards the top of the pinnacle of the mountain. And I love this because once again, I remind us that we're United Methodists and United Methodists, we have Wesleyan theology and Wesleyan theology has to do with grace. That's what John Wesley taught us. Our theology is, as, as Wesleyans, as, as United Methodists, we weigh heavily on God's amazing grace. And what, you know what Wesley would call this right here? He would call that his definition of holiness. He would call that moving on towards perfection. This is what we're striving for. Now listen, Wesley would say, maybe we never get there, but we're on the journey. We're striving for it. This is who we are as Christians. This is what God's called us to do. This is what God, God has called us to be, to continue to strive for this, this idea, this, this beautiful uh, part of our identity that Jesus has called us to love God with everything that we have, with our gusto, as, as Eugene, Peterson, Eugene, Peterson, Eugene Peterson put it in the message, to love God with this gusto and to love our neighbors ourselves. And to love just as Jesus taught us to love. So we have this conviction, we got clarity, and we got certainty. Now, here's the interesting thing that I've come up with my own little thought, and I, I call this the idea, what I call my wake-up call. And every single morning, we all have a wake-up call. And here's what we have to come to grips with. When you wake up in the morning... It's the first thought in your head, you think, dear God, thank you so much for giving me another day. I don't deserve to. Is that your first thought? Because if it's not, maybe it should be. Because I'm, I'm telling you, in my life, what I've gone through the last few years, that wake-up call came from a wake-up call. And so one of the things I've really learned to appreciate as I've been on, this, on my own journey, my own little journey of gusto of trying to strive to be all about this loving God, loving neighbor, and loving Jesus, just as Jesus has taught me. So the first thing that I realize when I get my wake-up call is, God, thank you so much for giving me this day. I don't deserve to. Here's the second thing I've realized about life. And I love this. I heard this the other day. One of my friends was talking about this and I thought, this is really, really good. Here's the question. Do I love Jesus more today than I did yesterday? Let that sink in for a second. 
Do I love Jesus more today than I did yesterday? So when I think about that question, A, am I really grateful for another day because I don't deserve another one? Am I certain about that? And the idea, am I really drawing closer to the idea that do I love, I love this, this idea of drawing closer to Jesus. And drawing closer to Jesus to me has everything to do with answering that question. Do I love Jesus more today than I did yesterday? It reminds me of this old hymn. It's one of my favorite old hymns. You all might be familiar with it. I am thine, O Lord, I heard thy voice and it told thy love to me, but I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Am I closer to Jesus today? Do I love him more today than I did yesterday? I was talking with one of my good friends this last week and we were just talking a little bit about life and our, our journey of life. And, this, and let me tell you something. Getting up this hill and trying to get here is not easy. You know why? Because it's uphill. It's, it's part of the struggle in life. I mean, life, we know that life is ups and we know that life is downs. But let me tell you, when you're going uphill, it's not always easy to get to this point, this pinnacle where, where Christ has really called us to be and to live. This idea, the answer to the question to do and be. And so what's very powerful in, the, in this conversation I had with my really good friends, he says, you know, Harold, I, I'm, really, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to do this, but it's hard, especially when someone has really wronged you and really hurt you, and they, you know for a fact they did it intentionally, and trying to love that person as Christ has called me to love, whew, man, that's tough. Has anybody ever been wronged by anybody? Okay, and so have you ever struggled with trying to love that person? Have you struggled with trying to forgive that person? That's what my friend and I were struggling with. And so we kind of swapped war stories. He, he shared with me a little bit about the person he's really struggling to love, and I shared with him about my own personal experience, about I continue to try to love this person who tried to literally destroy me. But each day I'm trying to love that person. And the reason why I'm trying to love that person because Christ has told me that I'm supposed to love him. I'm supposed to love my neighbor and I'm supposed to love like Jesus. And it's not easy to get there. Okay? We all can relate to that. And here's another little interesting part of this, this question of this, this whole little diagram with for us. Um, what's very powerful to me is that um, I, wrote my, I wrote my friend Lynn Sweet this last week. You know, Leonard is to me, um, he's a great mentor. Leonard Sweet is to, uh, actually one of the premier, one of the greatest theologians of the modern church. Matter of fact, he was actually named as one of the most influential Christians in America. Wow. And he has to be one of my friends. So every once in a while, I'll say, Lynn, I need some help with a text. Now, I don't call this in very often. Maybe once in a blue moon, maybe once a year, maybe once every year and a half. But I just happened, I had this, I was struggling with this text about Elijah being up on top of the mountain. I said, Lynn, can you just throw me a bone? Because I know that, I knew he had an idea about this text. And so he wrote me back a whole little summary. And this is what he shared with me. He says, you know, Harold, there are basically three questions to life. He says, the first two questions you actually, and we find from the book from all the way from Genesis to Revelation, you find through the Bible, and there are three summarizing questions. 
He says, the first two questions you actually find in the book of Genesis, the 16th chapter, the 8th verse. And it's where God has a conversation with Hagar. Now, you all know who Hagar is. You know, you have Abraham who had a wife named Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah have a little boy named Isaac. But before, because she's barren, she doesn't think she's going to be able to have a child. But she ends up giving her maidservant Hagar to Abraham. And then she has a child and his name is Ishmael. Okay? So in the midst of all this, this conversation and in the midst of life, so then finally Sarah gives birth to Isaac and, I, and then she's jealous of Hagar and little Ishmael. And so she basically says, Abraham, they got to go. Get rid of them. So they're cast out into the desert. And so in the midst of being cast in the desert, God comes to Hagar and says, because your son is part of the seed of Abraham, I'm going to bless you. By the way, here's the interesting thing. You ready? This is the first time God establishes a covenant with a woman in the Bible. It's with Hagar. He says, I'm going to bless your descendants. And she said, and then here's the interesting question. This is what Lynn points out. Here's the first question. Hagar, where are you from? What a great question. Where are you from? I mean, where you're from says a whole lot about who you are up here at this being question. It's part of your identity, part of where you are. Where are you from? You know, I'm from, well, I'm a preacher's kid. I was raised in a parsonage. You know, I'm from, my family's from Kentucky. I've got this kind of southern tea, southern hospitality. I got a grandmother, sat on the front porch. I mean, I've got all that going on in my heritage. So that's part of who I'm from. Old hymns. Communion. That's where I'm from. But then, he, then the, the second question that God asks Hagar is, where are you going? That's a great question, isn't it? Where are you going, Hagar? Well, I really don't know where I'm going. I just know that I've been thrown out and I'm headed out in the desert and I have no idea where I'm going, right? And, and so these are two great questions. Right? Where are you from and where are you headed? Where are you going? And then Lynn says, and by the way, Harold, you've touched upon the third great question you find in the Bible. The third great question is, why are you here? So Elijah's up on the top of the mountain Horeb, a.k.a. Sinai. And he says, God has this conversation with Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here? What a great existential question, isn't it? I mean, really the great existential question about why are you here, where are you from, where are you headed, those questions, those great questions, according to Len Sweet, the three greatest questions you find in the Bible, two from Hagar, one, God's relationship with Elijah, why are you here, what are you doing here, Elijah? Really kind of goes back to these bigger questions about what does God call me to do And how has God called me into being? And this conviction and clarity certainly lead towards loving God, loving a neighbor, loving just as Jesus has taught us to love, drawing closer. Am I grateful for another day? And the whole idea of, do I love Jesus more today than I did yesterday? Mm, That's what I got at three o'clock in the morning. Hmm. So we have this story today. Um, so let me just 
teach for a second on the story. So you have, we got two mountaintop experiences. So you got Elijah and Elijah is, um, uh, he goes to Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel. Um, they're not really good people. Matter of fact, I think we got a map of uh, 9th century BC. I think it's, a, here, so here's what's going on. Here's the Northern Kingdom and the, and the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom is in the blue and the Southern Kingdom is Judah and the Northern Kingdom is Israel. And so uh, Ahab and Jezebel are in charge of the Northern Kingdom. And so Je uh, uh, God is not happy with the way that they're, uh, Elijah calls them out and says, listen, here's the deal. God's told me, he's a prophet. He goes to Ahab and he goes to Jezebel and says, listen, I want you to know, because you're being disobedient and you worship the prophets of Baal, by the way, the prophets of Baal have to do with the God of rain. They worship the God of rain, but they're not really worshiping the true God, one God. Elijah says, he calls them out and says, listen, because you're not doing right and you fall completely, uh, just you're, you've lost your mind, there's going to be three years of drought. Now, I've been to the Holy Land many times, and I tell you what, when it's dry there, it's really dry, but I can't even comprehend a three years of drought, okay? So got, uh, Elijah goes to Ahab, he says, it's going to be three years of drought, and so then he has to flee for his life because they're, they don't want to have anything, they, they, they think that Elijah's a troublemaker. So he flees, and, and so in the midst of that, what I think is really interesting, there's this little sidebar story that we find in 1 Kings, and I, I think it's really powerful. So there's this, he meets up, in the midst of this drought, Elijah doesn't have enough to eat, so he meets up with this, um, this widow, um, and she's, the widow has a, a little boy, and um, she's the widow from Zarephath. And matter of, um, so the widow from Zarephath has some food, but she has a little bit of food, and so Elijah says, can you share that food with me? And she says, well, if I share the food with you, then my, my, me and my little boy are going to have enough food. And he says, don't worry about it. God's going to provide for you. And so she shares the food. And God provides food for all of them, which is a wonderful gesture. Then what happens to the story is that all of a sudden her little boy gets sick. And then the widow, and he dies. And so the widow says to Elijah, well, see, I told you so. Here I've tried to be good. You asked me and I gave you the food and God supposedly provided, but now all of a sudden my kid's dead. Now what? Some kind of God you got. So then Elijah says, give me the little boy. So he takes him up to his little room. He lays him out on his bed and he does this kind of special little prayer, this ritual. He lays his body over the little boy, not once, not twice, they three times. And the little boy comes back to life. It's the first resurrection story in the Bible. And it's Elijah. She takes, up, takes the little boy. Matter of fact, I think we got a picture of this old um, picture. Here's Elijah giving the little boy back to his mother. Alive. And, and what's the point of that story? The point of that story is I think that, see, here's what I realize about life is that unfaithfulness leads to Drought. Unfaithfulness in your marriages, unfaithfulness in your relationship with your children, unfaithfulness in your relationship with the people that you love and your relationships, unfaithfulness when, in the business world, it, eventually it will come back to bite you. Unfaithfulness leads to drought. This is what has happened with the children of Israel. This is what happened with Ahab and Jezebel. And so Elijah says there's going to be a drought. And faithfulness leads to drought.
Okay, so fast forward. So three years uh, later, um, Ahab, uh, Elijah goes back to uh, Ahab and Jezebel and says, listen, here's what we're going to do. He says, I, I'm going to challenge you. He says, you, you get your prophets of Baal, the gods of, you know, the ones, the prophets who are actually praying, the, the priests are praying to the God of rain. And we're going to go out to Mount Carmel. Matter of fact, here's a picture of Mount Carmel. This is exactly what it looks like. Here's the beautiful, now, I, I, if you go to the Holy Land, we get to climb that cliff. I'm just kidding. You take a bus. Once you know that. And so we go to the top. And matter of fact, here's a picture of the Jezreel. This is what it looks like from the top of Mount Carmel. It's a beautiful, you can see for miles. It's amazing on a clear day. And so Mount Car so Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and he challenges Ahab and Jezebel to this duel. And he says, listen, you, uh, you guys pray to your gods and um, you do whatever you want to do. So they lay this altar out. They sacrifice the ox. Matter of fact, they start praying and they actually cut themselves and there's, which is a taboo in the Jewish tradition. You never mix your blood with the sacrifice. And so it's just an awful thing. And so they continue to pray and pray, pray. They pray all day. Matter of fact, Elijah laughs at them and mocks them. He said, hey, listen, hey, maybe your gods are asleep. Wake them up. Pray a little louder. I love that. So they pray and pray, pray. Nothing happens. Then Elijah finally says, stand back. Let me show you really who's in charge. So he, he sacrifices his ox. He puts him on the altar. He drenches the altar with all this water. And all of a sudden, you're not going to believe it. It begins to rain. Now let's just talk about who's really God. So now all of a sudden, Ahab and Jezebel are not happy campers. Once again, they, uh, uh, Elijah has to flee for his life because they put a bounty on his head. Matter of fact, I love this part. He says, uh, Ahab and Jezebel says to Elijah, you're a troublemaker. And then Elijah says, I'm not the troublemaker. You're the troublemaker, right? And the whole idea, he says, how long are you going to ultimately do this tap dance? How long are you ultimately going to do this kind of conversion? Which way is this? Are you, are you in or are you out? Do you really believe or you don't? I mean, that, which way? It's almost like we find in the, in the book of Revelation where Jesus talks about the church at Lacedonia where he says, how long are you going to be lukewarm? You're talking out both sides of your mouth. Where are you? So here's the interesting thing. Guess what Elijah does? He goes from that mountain to another mountain. What's the other mountain? Mount Horeb, AKA, let me show you the map. Can you put the map up? Sinai. Where have we heard about Mount Sinai? Well, Moses went up there and got the Ten Commandments. So Elijah takes the 40 day and 40 night journey to go back to the same mountain that Moses received the Ten Commandments. So he goes up to the top of the mountain. And what's very interesting, if you go back and look at the original Greek and Hebrew and you look at the wording here, which is very powerful, the word, the, um, the word cleft of the rock really can mean the opening of a cave. So what's very interesting, most scholars believe that Elijah has gone back to the exact same spot that Moses receives the Ten Commandments at the top of the, of the mountain at the, at the cleft of the rock. So there is this place where M Moses cannot look at God because if you look at God, you, you would surely die. But the presence of God passes by him while he's in the cleft of the rock. So most scholars believe that Elijah goes back to the exact cleft of the rock, the same place where Elijah receives the Ten Commandments. By fact, this is the only time we find in the Bible that someone goes back to the exact same spot that Elijah or Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's Elijah. 
So then in the midst of this conversation, so God says to Elijah, go out to the mouth of the cave or go to the cleft of the rock and listen. So we find in the midst of this conversation, so Moses hears this wind, but the Bible says he didn't hear God's voice. Then there was fire, and he didn't hear God's voice. There was earthquake, earth shattering, but he does not hear God's voice. And then he goes to the mouth of the cave, or the cleft of the rock, and he hears God's voice. A still small voice, a whisper. I, I love this, you ready? Sound of God and silence. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? How do you hear in silence? What do you hear in silence? Hmm. Where have you heard God's voice speak to you in the silence? See, sometimes God doesn't speak in the fire and the wind and the earthquake, but sometimes God speaks in a still small voice. Sometimes God speaks in the sound of silence. How do I know that? How do you know that? I don't know, about 15, 18 years ago, I was walking across the parking lot on a Sunday morning and I was about to quit. And God says to me, Harold, I know you want to quit, but you can't quit. I'm faithful. You can't quit because I've called you to do and be. So go preach. Still small voice. About three years ago, I was in the middle of um, an intersection. I heard the sirens. I heard people talking. I heard the rush of the cars go by. I was wondering why my arms weren't working. I was laying on the concrete, just laying on the concrete. You know what God says to me? In the midst of all that fire and winter, the quake, and the sound of silence, Harold, I'm faithful. Yeah, you get it. Sometimes God speaks through fire, wind, earthquake, but sometimes God speaks in a very subtle and just in a gentle whisper. I believe that. How's God speaking to you? So here's, here's the last part of the story. What's this whole story about Elijah going up to the top of Mount Sinai? What's it really all about? You know what it's really about? Here's, here's what it's all about. Why does he go all the way back to Mount Sinai, the same mountain as the Moses receives the Ten Commandments. It's because there is that little part of the story where Moses has this conversation with God and the children of Israel down as he gets the Ten Commandments, what are they doing? They're making a golden calf. And then God is ready just 
he just is beside himself. And you know what Moses does? Moses pleads his case and says, Lord, you can't take him out. Show mercy. And what's very interesting is that Moses pleads for mercy for the children of Israel. In this case, Elijah does the exact opposite. He doesn't plead for mercy. Matter of fact, he throws them under the bus. And so maybe the point of the story is is that God was hoping that Elijah would do the same thing that Moses had done earlier. He would plead for mercy. See, what I love about this is it's very powerful is that Elijah is about pointing the finger. You know what's very powerful to me is that Jesus Christ never pointed the finger. In fact, Jesus did the opposite. Jesus said this, with his dying breath. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is a difference between pointing the finger and with your last dying breath, offering forgiveness to those who are killing you. Which goes back to this much more profound question about doing and being, about getting to this top of the mountain, about loving God, loving our neighbor, and loving like Jesus. So we've come here today as Christians, and we should not be pointing our finger at other people, because that's not the point of the story. We've come here to point to the cross of Jesus Christ. We've come here to sing God's praises. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord to thy precious bleeding side.